The following is a conversation between Rob Reach, the co-director of the Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society and author of Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. During this COVID-19 pandemic, there is a tremendous interest on how philanthropy is responding to the crisis. And on questions of philanthropy, there is no opinion more sought than that of Rob Reach, the co-director of the Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society, and author of Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better. And he's with us now. Welcome to the Business of Giving, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So there's a lot of critiques that go on with philanthropy, but almost all of them are done within the system itself, which by its very definition creates a set of limiting beliefs. You're viewing this through the lens of a political philosopher, and you're placing it into a much larger societal context, the institutional setting from which it's taking place. What does it look like from there? What seems obvious to me as a political scientist was a kind of new frame for people who work in philanthropy, which is to try to understand the entire array of philanthropic activities in relationship to democracy, the political house in which we all live. And there's this big discourse in philanthropy, anybody who's in philanthropy has been thinking about strategic giving or effective giving and making sure that there are outcomes and measures and there's like kind of an effectiveness discourse. But for me, the question is effective at what? How should we decide what philanthropy should be effective at? And the answer to that question seems to me is, well, effective at supporting the basic ideals of democracy doing things that the marketplace can or won't do and doing things that democratic institutions can or won't do in the name of a better democratic society. The book is about how the current practice of philanthropy fails democracy, undermines democratic ideals, and tries to illuminate a path forward so that we can understand better the things that philanthropy can do and the rules that should govern philanthropy so that it supports democracy rather than subverts it. Well, let's take those two things you just mentioned. In what way, in what fashion, is philanthropy failing democracy? One of the things we can start with is that the, the kind of rules that govern philanthropy in the United States are unusual, and I think they stand in need of some justification. So I have in mind things like the tax incentives for charitable contributions, the establishment of these corporate vehicles like private foundations or donor-advised funds, which have a variety of peculiar things. But rather than get into the nitty-gritty details, I think I'll just say, when we think about big philanthropy and the Second Gilded Age here, some of the biggest names on the table that we hear about all the time are the biggest philanthropists among us, the Gateses of the world, the Jeff Bezoses, Mark Zuckerbergs, and so on. Not to mention the old school philanthropies like the Ford Foundation, the Hewlett mm -hmm. Foundation, the Carnegie Corporation. Well, in my view, big philanthropy represents the direction of private assets to some public influence. And in that respect, it's a kind of exercise of power by the wealthy over the public, or at least to try to influence our common civic space together. And anywhere that power exists in a democratic society, it deserves scrutiny, not just simple celebration or gratitude. So we should be scrutinizing the power that's wielded by big philanthropists in order to try to decide whether it supports democracy or not. And I'm just giving a standard example of this. The Gates Foundation, which everyone knows about, has a longstanding education program to try to influence education reform and K-12 education and improve it. And that's great. If you think that Bill Gates's ideas about school reform are good ones, you're happy to see that influence within the public school sector. Have a go at it. See what these reform ideas amount to. 
But if you're opposed to Bill Gates's ideas, you view that as a private insertion of his power and his ideas into the public school system. You can unelect the school superintendent. You can throw the mayor out of office and change the school board if you want. But what can an ordinary citizen do about the Gates Foundation's education ideas? There's no one to unelect, and there's no way really to contest the power that he wields. He's in, he's, in the words of one person, the nation's unelected school superintendent. And yeah. that captures something about the idea I have, which is that we shouldn't just direct our gratitude to philanthropists for giving money away to some public cause. We have to decide whether or not the power that they're wielding is power that we should be happy with. I and mean, we have to hold that power to account in certain ways. You know, Rob, the question I have here is that that used to be the case. Certainly in That's the right. early part of the 20th century, it wasn't the case. So the real question to me is, why isn't it that way anymore? You're exactly right. When I started doing research for this book, I discovered that when John Rockefeller wanted to set up the Rockefeller Foundation, he encountered enormous public criticism, including from the president of the United States, who said that the idea of creating the Rockefeller Foundation was nothing more than a bill to incorporate Mr. Rockefeller himself. And my explanation for why the temperature of the country shifted towards philanthropy has to do with the exalted place that founders and capitalists have in the United States today, the rise of marketplace thinking as the source of solutions to all problems. The idea that running the country as the president is nothing different than bringing your business knowledge into political office, or the idea that we celebrate rich people because they have accomplished something extraordinary in the marketplace, and therefore their wisdom can be applied directly to philanthropy. The United States, in the late part of the last century and the early part of this century, has celebrated wealthy people in a way that hasn't always been true. And so that's led to some of the permissions that philanthropists have had without any scrutiny over the past generation. Would also the vilification of government occurring over those last 25 or 50 years be a part of it as well? The kind of Reagan era mantra that uh, big government is something to worry about has helped to open up space for both corporate leaders and philanthropic leaders to fill in the vacuum of what was left. And sometimes I think that one of the strangest dynamics in American society today is that the wealthiest among us will seek to do everything they can legally to diminish their tax contributions to zero. Mm -hmm. And in that respect, remove themselves as a citizen contributing to our collective political project. And then having tried to diminish their taxes as low as they can go, they'll say, Government is inefficient, it's broken, it's too bureaucratic, um, it's not doing the job it needs to do. And they'll say, you know what, I can do better than the government. And I'm going to set up my own private foundation to distribute the social benefits that I think would be great. And I'll take a further tax break for doing so. And then in return for diminishing my taxes to near zero, complaining about the government and setting up a private foundation in my own name, I ask for everyone to bend over in gratitude to me for the entire sequence of events and get social praise. That's a perversion of democracy that I think we really need to change. It has something to do with the general distrust of government. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you think philanthropy should support a democratic society? Yeah, well, so let's take that last point. One of the things which I think in the history of philanthropy shows us is that when you think about the amount of philanthropic assets that any particular person has, even the richest among them, Bill Gates with between 40 and $50 billion in his foundation, that's still a relatively small amount compared to public spending or the amount of money that a government has. And so 
even the most successful philanthropist, if he or she wishes to bring the innovations or the ideas they have to scale, has to ultimately hand that off to the government to do. So what I have in mind here is like, remember the classic example of successful philanthropy is the Carnegie's creation of the library system. Mm -hmm. And now the library is just an ordinary public expenditure stimulated by this fantastic philanthropic idea. And the Gates Foundation, once again, today, it doesn't say we'd like to fund education reform for all people across the country in perpetuity. The idea is ultimately to hand off some successful experiment to either the marketplace to go to scale or to the ultimate scaling mechanism of all, which is the government. Yeah. So the relationship between philanthropy and government is that I see philanthropy as a kind of risk capital. The idea mm -hmm. that you pilot new ideas, new solutions to social problems that you wouldn't expect to see from the marketplace or from government. And then the successful ones with great evidence behind them can be handed off to the government as an ordinary public expense. Yeah, I see that in some health organizations where they go down to NIH and they see all the grants that were not funded because they yeah. were too risky. That's and right. then philanthropy comes in and say, we'll roll the dice on that. And if we can get some evidence here, we'll turn it back to you and you can give it some big money. So that's the case it works. You talked about the charitable deduction a couple times. And you yep. suggested that that be replaced by the charitable credit. Share, tell us what you mean, number one, and then share your thinking on that. This gets pretty wonky into taxation, but anyone who's had to file a tax form will know this, that if you deduct your charitable contributions from your income, your tax bill goes down. And the higher the rate of tax that you pay, the greater the subsidy is under the deduction. So if you give $1,000 Denver to the local soup kitchen and you're the rich guy and so you're taxed at a 39% tax rate, mm -hmm. that $1,000 contribution actually costs you $610 because $390 are subtracted from your taxes. Now, if I make the same $1,000 contribution to the same soup kitchen, we both produce the identical public benefit but I'm the poor person and I get taxed at a 15% rate, that $1,000 contribution costs me $850 and only $150 is subtracted from my taxes. So this kind of weird subsidy in the form of a deduction is chiefly beneficial to already wealthy people and doesn't give anything in the same type of incentive to middle-class or low-income people to make donations, which I think is bizarre. Mm -hmm. So I propose giving everybody an identical and non-refundable tax credit. For example, Bill Gates gets a $1,000 tax credit, you, Denver, get a $1,000 tax credit, and I get a $1,000 tax credit. We can allocate it to whatever charitable organization we want. After that, Bill Gates is free to give money away in a way that, you know, he has so much more than I do. He'll give away more money than I can. But at least the incentive that the policy mechanism has treated us equally and given us equal voice. It doesn't overweight Bill Gates's voice. Gates is already super wealthy and the policy mechanism of the deduction gives greater voice to the wealthy people by giving them a greater subsidy. Nothing wonky about that at all. What kind of reception has that idea gotten so far? I think people see immediately what a problem it is. I am not myself in the midst of any policy circles to know whether there's any potential uptake for it in changes to legislation. But I hope by framing the idea this way, people will come to see how easy it would be, at least in principle, to change it. Like the idea of a tax credit isn't my own. We've yeah. had tax credits for other things all the sure. time. So there's nothing radical about the idea. It just requires some political will. And I hope over the course of time, we'll see some of that. Mm -hmm. 
So, Rob, you're talking about really scrutinizing all philanthropic activity and certainly that of mega donors so that there's some public confidence that it's democracy serving rather than democracy corrupting. What do you think is a mechanism for doing that? As far as the scrutiny goes, I think one of the most important mechanisms is to vastly increase the transparency of philanthropy mm-hmm. so that ordinary citizens and journalists in particular are able to inquire into the activities of philanthropists large and small. And I really want to emphasize the role of journalists here because I have always found it peculiar that you have in every magazine and every newspaper a class of journalists who pay attention to elected politicians, and you make your name by doing an investigation into problems within government. You have an entire section or entire magazines devoted to corporations. Every major newspaper has a Silicon Valley reporter, often a whole team of reporters devoted to reporting on the large tech companies. And yet there's no equivalent journalistic inquiry as a general matter into the activity of philanthropy. So, you know, we have these three basic centers of power, the government, the marketplace, and philanthropy or nonprofits, and almost no attention is paid to philanthropy and nonprofits by the press. And I think that's a huge failing. And we could improve that if we had greater transparency and there was just more orientation amongst people to pay attention to the classic sort of activities of civil society, nonprofits, and foundations. Yeah. You know, we've had a rise of interest in social enterprise at institutions such as yours and Harvard and others. But the study of philanthropy has really been limited for many, many a year. I wonder why that's always been the case. That's another great example. Again, in the same way which I just described the problem with journalism, there's a problem with academia. And one of the reasons why I started writing this book was that I thought I had an interesting project in mind, a question in mind about philanthropy. And I said to myself, all right, well, who is a scholar writes about philanthropy? And I was, well, there's entire schools of business. You can get an MBA and you have scholars devoted to studying the marketplace and corporations. And you have political science departments or schools of public policy that study public institutions. But where are the departments or the schools and universities that are devoted to thinking about nonprofits and philanthropy and civil society? Once again, it doesn't exist. So very, very strange. Mm -hmm. You have also, in the book, raised the issue of philanthropy's difficult relationship with justice and equality, and that is something that has really come to the fore with the COVID-19 pandemic. Speak a little bit about that and of this concern. If you come to the idea of philanthropy, or particularly if you're going to label it charity, and you think that it's basically an almsgiving or a kind of redressing of disadvantage, it's giving to people who are poor or suffer from some kind of persistent disadvantage, and you look at the actual data about the distribution of charitable dollars, you'll be greatly disappointed because in the most generous accounting, only one third of every charitable dollar goes to assist the poor. And so that's kind of shocking when you learn that initially. I went into the entire project thinking that charity was an alternative mechanism to providing for people who were suffering in some way or had great disadvantage. And Now, in the midst of COVID-19, we see all kinds of suffering in our midst, millions of people unemployed, the frontline workers in hospitals getting infected, we're lacking even basic supplies in certain places, so needs have never been greater. And it's an important task for, first, the government, but then in a kind of second best sense for charity and philanthropy to step up to the plate. And so in this particular moment, there's an emergency, and it's all hands on deck. And it feels to me like wherever wise dollars can be procured to try to meet the emergency and move us past it, that's an urgent task at hand. 
And so it'd be great to see people stepping up and not thinking just about a 5% payout rate, but thinking about actually doing everything that they can to get us past the emergency. Are you seeing that? Boy, this has been a big topic of a discussion, as you know, in terms of the immediate relief and the recovery and looking at the endowment and trying to balance that. It's just been as hot an issue as I've seen in a quite some time. What's your take in terms of what's happening? I think the discussion is super important because on the one hand, large philanthropies in the institutional foundations are appropriately oriented towards long time horizon change. They're not well suited to deal with emergency. So if you take your ordinary foundation, Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation, and you say, oh my gosh, there's an emergency. We have to pivot now to doing things within the next three months or six months or nine months. Well, they're not especially well staffed or trained or suited for that kind of work. And yet, urgent needs are so great. And so it really does call out. And so at least for me, I see people grappling with the 5% payout rate there. Let's try Mm -hmm. to maintain as best we can our existing pattern of grant making, but let's increase what we do based upon moving past the 5% payout rate, even if our endowment has taken a hit because the endowment is in certain respects a rainy day fund and the storm is upon us. So now it's raining. All right. Yeah. Notwithstanding your tax credit idea, do you think there should be different tax structures for an individual giving a contribution to Feeding America as opposed to Harvard University? Right. That's what seems, again, so peculiar when you begin to look into this is that if you give money to Feeding America and I give money to Harvard University, we are both given the identical tax benefit in terms of the deduction. And the idea that the policy instrument should treat the social value of those donations as identical would seem to many people as a bizarre idea. Feeding America is doing urgent social needs and Harvard University has $40 billion already. What's another couple thousand bucks going to do for them? So I'm open to the idea that we have a differentiated incentive structure that puts a kind of extra thumb in the scale of uh, poverty fighting organizations. And so long as that doesn't come at the expense of the work of long time horizon risk taking social problem solving. Mm -hmm. In other words, I came to the view that redressing disadvantage and fighting poverty isn't the sole purpose of charity and philanthropy. It's an important one, but not the only one. There are other rationales as well. Finally, Rob, the coronavirus, boy, that has exposed so many fault lines in our society from a lack of preparedness and fragility of our healthcare system to the true nature of inequality that exists in this country. What do you think has come into really sharp relief as it pertains to the shortcomings of the philanthropic sector? The philanthropic sector, I think, has come to realize, like many of the rest of us, that the federal infrastructure for preventing and handling a crisis of this magnitude is broken beyond repair at the moment. Mm -hmm. And the responses of philanthropy always pale in comparison to what it is that needs to happen at the federal level. And I take Bill Gates here as a really admirable spokesperson on behalf of this. The Gates Foundation is working on the problem of pandemics for a while. The famous 2015 TED Talk that Bill Gates gave in which he said that the problem that keeps him awake at night more than any other is the possibility that a pandemic will come and will not be prepared. He was really directing his attention to the developing world. We needed public health systems in poor places. We needed to be able to contain outbreaks. And he seemed to me to assume that in the places like the United States or in, in Europe, 
there would be ample ways that the public health infrastructure would take care of the crisis. And now he, like other people, are realizing just how broken our United States federal response has been. And it's as if the United States is another country in the developing world portfolio of the Gates mm. Foundation. We look to him to stimulate vaccine development in the seven factories that he says we need. The idea that Gates isn't on the coronavirus task force at the White House should puzzle anybody since he's been working on this and the foundation for a long time. So the quick answer to your question is that philanthropy has woken up to the idea that the only solution to a crisis of this magnitude is a well-functioning set of public institutions. And a piecemeal philanthropic response will always pale in comparison to what it is that's necessary for the scale of this crisis. And so we have to revitalize our public institutions for the future. And there's no task more urgent than that. That's right. And probably philanthropy can help do that. I hope so. I want to thank you, Rob, for taking the time today to share this information and these insights. The book is Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better. This is a most timely read, I got to tell you, for the moment that we find ourselves in. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk. Thank you.